Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 27. Welcome back. It's Christmas time. Well, holiday time. Holiday time. It's holiday time for everyone. Yeah. We're at my house today. It's lovely. I decorated for you. <laughs> you did a wonderful job. There's a, <laughs> Thank you. There's a life-size Santa looking at me. There are animatronic reindeers. and I, I go a little overboard. <laughs> I wish there was that. I'm There's kidding. just a no, lovely Christmas tree. It's just a regular tree. old Christmas tree. So I'm wondering, um, are you going to do a Christmas-themed, holiday-themed quickie today? Well, I am today, yes. Okay. The Christmas-themed quickies are harder to come by than I thought. Yeah. Or holiday-themed quickies. Okay, but I am going to do a holiday quickie today. Now, this one, I know it's uh, we usually do them centered around love. This is more, it's not like a love story. It's more like um, sexual in nature. Okay, well, that's like a form of love. <laughs> yeah, Sex is a form of love. Okay. In Kansas City, Missouri, 24-year-old Shelby Gash asked her dad if she could use some of the leftover Christmas lights that he had in the garage to make a display. Uh, It's a 60-foot display on the top of her roof. Okay. And she told him exactly what she wanted the display to look like, what she was going to do with it. And he said, sure, go for it. Okay. And she did. And... A few, while well, a few people struggled to make out what it was, basically this display that she um, made made waves. I shall say, okay, it rocked the neighborhood. All right, and um, when a reporter from Channel Twelve interviewed her, they asked her, they're like, "Well, could you tell us exactly what it is? Is it a guitar? Is it a funky sleigh?" And then Shelby responded, "It's a giant glowing dick." <laughs> Just very matter-of-factly. Oh, my God. This interview, you guys, if you can Google it, just Google Shelby Gash. This interview from this reporter to her made me laugh so fucking hard. It was like straight out of a Christopher Guest movie. Yeah. Like, what is that? Exactly. She's like, giant glowing dick. Oh, my God. It's hilarious. So some people thought that it was hilarious. Right. You know, it's just like a giant penis. On her roof. roof, 60 feet. And some people thought it was hilarious, but a lot of neighbors were not happy about it at all. Yeah. A lot of them said, yeah, it's a joke. It's kind of funny, but it, you know, it wears off real quick when our children are walking by. <laughs> What's that, Mom? Why is there a penis on? I mean, every kid knows what it is. Yeah, I, I get. Or you could just tell them it's a funky sleigh. <laughs> it's a funky sleigh. Like the reporter thought. <laughs> so the photos went viral, and um, Shelby Gash went on her TikTok. Do you do TikTok? I can't do another thing. Yeah, I, no. I can't. So she went on her TikTok, like showed her photos. She asked all of her followers, quote, um, do y'all get famous for putting a dick on your roof? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> and then the video, uh, and then at the end she was like, whoops, because she totally got famous by yeah. this Penai. But then, sadly, four days later, she ended up taking it down because she decided to pull the plug after hearing about the concerns that, about the children. The and children. What yeah. would the children think? What would the children think? And so Shelby told WDAF-TV, 
Which sounds like W, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? She said, "Um, I'm sorry if this was actually really bothering people. I was just trying to make people laugh. And I laughed so fucking hard. Yeah, Shelby's Shelby's my kind of girl. Yeah, I love her. Shout out to uh, Shelby Gash. And watch the interview. She's cool as shit. I just (laughs) feel like she's somebody we would definitely be friends with. Like, I would never do it. Because I'm too much of a rule follower, but I would love somebody who did. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I'm like, that's a person I want to be friends with who's just like, who the fuck cares? Let's do it. You yeah. Know? Like, I'd be like, are you sure? Are we going to get in trouble? Oh my God. And then in the text messages to her dad, she tells him, she's like, hey, can I have the lights? Because I want to make a giant dick on the roof. And he goes, yeah, go for it. Like, that's an awesome dad. I love it. I think it was awesome. And there were lots of people in the neighborhood that thought that it was great and they would drive by and take pictures and <laughs> you know but i get it you know yeah yeah there's kids in the neighborhood but yeah, yeah that's my holiday quickie i love it so my quickie is also about a holiday how'd you find it the internet oh oh ben told me my okay. husband <laughs> but nice. it's about a different holiday it's about valentine's day oh so have you ever had someone be like oh i texted you and then you didn't get the text oh yeah and then you're they're like oh something must be wrong with my phone and you're like yeah right <laughs> okay yeah but i've definitely had that happen to me before where like i really wasn't getting the text messages yes. or whatever yes i've had yeah. that happen to me like it's annoying right that's annoying on like a random day but on november 6th of this year almost two hundred thousand people got text messages almost nine months after they were sent and the thing that made it so crazy is that all of these texts were originally from Valentine's Day. <gasps> so they were all I love yous that didn't get... That never got sent. Aww. So these people never got the messages in the first place. The people who sent the messages had no idea that they hadn't been received. And then they did... And so they didn't know they, they, didn't know they hadn't got... The people hadn't gotten them, so they didn't try to resend them. And so... The delayed text messages were sent and received both on iPhones, Android, from all of different carriers all around the U.S. and in in Canada. And it turns out that this company named Cineverse, which provides networking services, which I don't know, something internet-y. So they're the ones who took the blame for it because they said there was like a server that failed and... It failed on February 14th. It trapped all these messages waiting to be sent out, and the server was only brought back online on November 6th. Wow. In the middle of the night. So when that server came back online, all of those messages were sent at like 4 a.m. As you can imagine, it was like really confusing and distressful for a lot of people because oh my god like exes people broke up would get what if they broke up because of that right so a woman got a text from her mom who had died being like i'm on my way over oh my god yeah crazy and then this one woman whose husband is stationed on a naval carrier in the ocean (laughs) got a text from her husband saying surprise, I'm going to be home in a few hours. And so she got it like 4am and she was so excited. She was like up all night cleaning. And then she, the next morning she realized like, oh no, he's still on this Oh on my this God, ship. That's horrible. And she was like, well, at least my house is clean. Aww. <laughs> like most of them were just like pretty, like mildly embarrassing and kind of funny. Like one woman, her phone randomly texted her boss at 4am And she was like, I'm on a sprint. You're trying to get me fired, (laughs) you know? Oh, my God. And then this woman, Shannon Donnelly, wrote on Twitter, in a technology ruins everything news, at 3 a.m., my ex's phone decided to resurface a text I'd sent him this past Valentine's Day when we were still together, (gasps) which led to me waking up 
from to a huh from him that came out of nowhere. This other guy said, got a text last night from a girl I almost dated in February. I was really confused until I realized the text was also sent back in February. It said, yes, I'd love to go out for Valentine's Day. And now I know why we never dated. Oh my God. This sounds like the plot to like an HBO uh, television series. Right? <laughs> it's like this like is a the little leftover. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So a guy woke up at 2.30 a.m. He said, my phone decided to send my text to my ex-girlfriend from nine months ago. She had made this really sweet video of us for Valentine's Day. She thought I didn't respond to it. And so that led to, among other things, a ruined relationship. Oh my God. And then another woman woke up to a surprise face emoji from an ex and she was like wrote back are you all right and he was like yeah I'm good I'm just wondering what that valentine's comment was about and she was like what are you talking about so he sent her a screenshot and it was just a message that said I hope to spend more valentine's day with you to come oh my god and just like out of the blue and they are broken up so whoa that's crazy crazy. I hope that they like had some follow-up stories maybe there's some romance got got rekindled yeah yeah that's nuts. Or maybe some people broke up because a girlfriend saw her, like, yeah, like her a partner. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yo, yo. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Cool, cool. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Okay, so this crazy story today is real intense. Okay. And I feel like I have to put some trigger warnings in front of it about it deals with domestic violence and abuse. And there's also a little bit of animal cruelty. I will let you know when that's coming so you can choose to fast forward or not. And it's a really hard story to hear, but it's very important to hear. And I'll tell you why it's so important after I'm finished. Well, and I think we tell a lot of awful stories, but I do think that in general we have shied away from stories of domestic violence. Yeah. And the truth is that among couples, that that is probably the number one thing that leads to it a is. spouse being killed. And so we should include those stories, even though they're really hard to hear. Yes. Yes. Okay. It is important. I'm ready um, to hear your intense story. Okay. I'm so, cringing. I have my chocolate. Oh, yeah. And there, it's real chocolate this time. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, You're welcome, No, no, no. Monk fruit bullshit. <laughs> Okay, so in 1990, at 17 years old, Rose Ryan was an honors graduate of Lynn East High School, um, getting ready to attend Suffolk University. This was in Boston. She was the youngest of nine children, and she considered herself to be, you know, like the rebel of the family. Her parents were super strict, and so she grew up in a very sheltered environment, and she wanted to break free of that. She was really smart. She loved books and literature, especially Russian literature. Her dream was to go to college in New York City and become a writer. So when she went away to school, she, you know, her and her friends would go into the city all the time because she listened to a lot of hardcore music. Yeah. She um, sounds kind of like you, Jen. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah, I, there are a lot of sim- similarities yeah. for sure. Like, yeah, listen, you know, I would go into the city all the time and I thought I was older than I was. Right. Well, and you were like, you're kind of like the rebel of your yeah. family. And, I did yeah. not read Russian literature, but I should have. Yeah. <laughs> You got um, a lot of Teen Beat, same yeah. thing. It's like Dostoevsky. I don't know any Russian I know writers. I couldn't say that. <laughs> so at a party in Boston in the late summer of 1990, Rose meets a guy named Michael Cartier. Hearing the description of this guy, like, I knew guys like this. Yeah. You know, so he was like kind of a big deal in the hardcore scene. He was handsome. He had blue eyes, black hair. He was 
tall and muscular. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a lot of tattoos. People call them Castle Neck Mike because he had a huge tattoo of a castle on his neck. Get it? (laughs) Yeah, I get get it. it. Castle (laughs) Neck Mike. That's not the most most clever name? name yeah castle neck mike but you know you know who you know who they're talking about yeah castle neck mike so he was older and he was like a nightclub bouncer and he was kind of the cool guy of yeah the scene. i can 100 percent yeah picture him yes yeah so in at this party he was sitting in like this big white chair in the middle of the room like he was the king of this party Uh you know but when she walked in he immediately zoned in on her because she was this beautiful girl with long dark hair and big brown eyes tiny little thing and he immediately just wanted to hang out with her and so they hung out that night you know at the party and you know she talked to him listened to him because he was older and cool and then he tried to kiss her and she said like no I just met you and his reaction he got like really angry and he was like fine fuck you sounds like a cool guy yeah and rather than seeing that that kind of excited her because she was like wow he wanted to be with me this cool guy wanted to be with me that bad that he's this upset that i wouldn't kiss him yeah so mike tracks down her number from a friend and asks her out on a date and so she was thrilled Mm -hmm. to go out on a date with this guy and so when they went out she fell for him hard he made her feel like he was showing her this new world he was her entrance into this cool world of hardcore music and being an adult and parent free it was like this world outside of her strict family life she liked that he seemed a bit dangerous and rebellious um she found it attractive started dating immediately and then mike would parade her around the scene like she was his prize like Mm -hmm. kind of like his queen to her king but he was also very jealous and didn't want her talking to anybody else she was his possession basically God, it's like I saw this happen so many times. I know. That's why this story, uh, and you'll find out uh, when I'm done, like why this story hits even more close yeah. to home. This story is just so relatable yeah. to like so many of my girlfriends mm-hmm. and the scene and. Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah. He, Mike had lived in this apartment on Commonwealth Avenue with this student at the museum school. Her name was Kara Bodiger. And they actually dated a few times, but then they just like, you know, it didn't work out, but they still lived in this apartment together and coexisted. Rose eventually moved in with him and like brought her things over there, but still had her own place, essentially moved in. And to make him happy, she quit her job and stopped going to school because he wanted her there all the time. Right. He wanted to have control and know what she was doing. And Yeah. Mike had a lot of mood swings and depression, but Rose said, he had me thinking that he'd had a bad deal his whole life and that nobody loved him and that I was the only person that could help him. Right. And which made her feel special. Mm -hmm. And so Mike did have a hard time growing up. He despised his mother. Um, When he was seven, she sent him to live at the New England Home for Little Wanderers, it was called. It was a state-supported residential treatment center for troubled children. At seven? Can you imagine? And the staff there said that they knew that he was an abused child and that it was the worst childhood they'd ever seen. But when they interviewed his mother, Penny Cartier, she denies all of that. But... He hated his mother. His old roommate, Kara, said, I just know that he hated her. He said that he wanted to get a tattoo on his arm of her hanging from a tree with animals ripping at her body. Like, he hated his mother. And he also told Rose that she looked like 
his mother. He was attracted to her because he reminded her of her mother, but a mother that was actually treating him nice. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's it's a little crazy. So he lived at the New England home until he was 12. And then in October of 1982, he was put in the Harbor School in Amesbury, which is a center treatment for disturbed teenagers. And then he stayed there for four years and then he was turned over to his father. He went to high school, Lawrence high school but dropped out after a couple years they said that he just got too frustrated Uh and that he couldn't keep up so he just dropped out and by his second semester of high school he was already facing nearly 20 criminal charges that piled up on him Jesus. yeah so like he was just a troublemaker um so mike how he was kind of able to like live is that he had been in a car accident and Uh he got a very large settlement but apparently he blew through the settlement. He, that was kind of, besides bouncing, being a bouncer in a nightclub, that was, he didn't have to work really. Right. So he was just kind of getting into trouble. all the time. And so Rose said that, you know, he was her first real boyfriend and that, you know, she just got caught up in the scene and, you know, hanging out with everybody and it was exciting to her. And at first everything was fine. But then just two months into their relationship, things started to sour. There was a day when Mike and Rose were walking around the common and jokingly he picked her up and put her inside a garbage barrel and she was pissed and she got up and walked away like, what the fuck? And he was like, come on, I was kidding, I was kidding. And then she Mm. walked away and when she walked away, he punched her in the back of the head. (gasps) She got up and kept walking, he punched her again. And she said that she was just in complete shock. Like she had never been hit before. In public? In public. This was so alarming about all of this is most of this shit happens in public and nobody gets involved. Right. It's crazy. So she was just in shock and like couldn't even wrap her head around the fact that he had just hit her. Right. But he immediately started crying and was like, why do I always hurt the people I love? You know, Mm. what? Mm -hmm. like, what can I do to fix it? It's because my mother didn't love me and I need your help. And so she gave in to him. Right. They kept dating. And um, one day, you know, he gave her a baby kitten. So, and he found it on the street and he didn't get a litter box for it. Just like, you know, an idiot punk kid just grabs a kitten and then doesn't even consider the things that you need to do to take care of this kitten so the kitten didn't have a litter box so it went to the bathroom on the floor and then when it went to the bathroom it got on mike's jacket and when he saw what happened he totally freaked out and here's the part where i'm going to tell you to either earmuffs or fast forward uh do it now but basically he threw the kitten in the shower and turned the hot scalding water on and kept it there under the hot water and then he took a men's razor and like shaved <gasps> all of the, the kitten's hair off. And the kitten lived, but he like tortured this cat. Oh my God. Um, so then another. It's like worse than. And it's so calculated. Like yes, every that's step what I mean. of it's it like, is it ta- like. That takes time. That's not like something that happens in a blind rage where you're like, you know, yeah. kick a kitten or something. That is. It's fucked. That's fucked. I know. And so after a party that December, Mike got mad at rose because she didn't he bought a pizza and she didn't want to eat it like Mm -hmm. she just wasn't hungry she didn't think anything of it she was like no thanks i'm not hungry and started walking back and then all of a sudden he backhanded her in the face and she fell down and she said that she was lying on the ground screaming and then he finally stopped kicking me after i don't know how long and then he said you better get up or i'll kill you and this is in front of people at a party and like nothing happens you would you know wonder like why isn't she leaving him and he would tell him her that he was the only person that loved her she didn't have a close relationship with her parents and right. that you know she'd be nothing without him 
and her family never really showed affection. They were really religious, like northeastern family. Yeah, you just know, like, like they just never showed and stiff so, upper lip. Kind yeah. Of. yeah, yeah. And so she wasn't used to any kind of affection or I love you. So even though he would hit her, but then when he would turn around and be like, but I love you, I love you, and affection, that was what she thought was love. Well, and she's probably, because it's happening so in young. front of other people. Yeah, and, and they're, they're not, not reacting. She's probably like, well, I guess this isn't, nobody else thinks this is a big deal. Yeah. They think I'm lucky to be with him. Yeah. So I guess I am. I mean, it's just, it's like such a common story. I know. That... Oh, it's just so, I'm so and ugh. she confused his possessiveness and his need to control her as shows of love. Right. And then he would tell her that she needed him to save him. But she was also afraid too that if she confronted him that things would get worse because even when she wasn't doing anything, yeah, you she know, was he was of him. Yeah, <laughs> she was walking on eggshells and just wanted to please him. So then on the night of October fourth, nineteen ninety, Mike, after a binge drinking session with his friends he went on a total rampage and he took a sledgehammer and smashed it through his bedroom's wall and into an apartment's neighbor he smashed all of rose's belongings and earmuffs again or fast forward but then he took the kitten (gasps) and he threw it out of the fourth floor window and killed it oh my god and she had snuck out of the apartment because when he started rampaging she didn't want to be around it but then when she came back that's when she saw that the police were there and that he was being taken away on handcuffs because a neighbor had called the police. And when the police told her, like when she got back, they said, get out, this guy is crazy. Like, do not date this guy. And he had actually already been on probation for something else. But when he went to jail, the charges of burglary and cruelty to animals were dismissed for some reason. And the courts are nothing wrong with just putting him back out on the street. And so when Mike went to Rose after he got out of jail, he told her that like, oh, I blacked out. I don't remember any of this. Please help me. Like, I want to get help. And But she was done. She was like, I don't want anything to do with you. Like, leave me alone. Yeah. But he would call her obsessively, obsessively, over and over and over and over. And then one day when she was feeling the courage to go over there and end it for good, she went over there with the intentions of, over to his apartment with the intentions of getting the rest of her things. Mm-hmm. And But when she got there, he threw her into his room and locked the door. And he held her down and he raped her. And then he eventually let her go. But it wasn't until she had to fake it and be like, you're right, Mike, we should be together. Yeah. You know what I mean? To get out safely. Yeah. And so that's when he let her go. But as soon as she got out, she moved back home with her parents And she tried to hide out from him, but he would call a million times a day and threaten her. And she asked her parents to change the phone number, but her parents were like, we're not changing our phone number because you got into a situation with a boy. They totally didn't support her at all. Fuck her parents. Yes. And so he, yeah, so he just kept calling her. Finally, she confided in her sister, older sister, Tina, and she helped her get a restraining order against Mike. So they called his probation officer in Brighton. His name was Tom Casey. And Tom Casey told Rose to get a restraining order. And on March 28th, he obtained a warrant for Cartier's arrest for breaking probation or whatever. But before they could pick him up, Rose Ryan one day was traveling home from a friend's house on the T, which is a Boston trolley train and subway Mm -hmm. system. 
and there Mike followed her and he accosted her at the government center station with a pair of scissors and she ducked the scissors, but he punched her in the mouth. It took a month for police to pick him up and arrest him, a month, and which is so fucked. And so, like after that happened? A month before the warrant was issued for his arrest. A whole month he was on the street. And they say that the reason that this happened was that probation warrants have to be served by the police and the police don't take them seriously enough. Mm -hmm. And probationers know that even when they do pick these people up, that they can skip court appearances and not even be held responsible for them. It's just like a lost cause. So the system was just not protecting her. Finally got arrested. um, He spent four days in jail in 1991 at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center in Boston Mm -hmm. instead of, so I guess it wasn't actually jail. He, so then when he was, uh, had to go to court for it, he just denied it, denied making all of these threats and denied doing these things. And then they released him the very next day. This guy that had 20 counts of bullshit. Right, and had been arrested not long ago for smashing up his apartment and killing a cat. And it's crazy. And even in court, like in front of people, when Rose and her sister were at court, in front of the whole room, he yelled at them and said, I know who you are and I'm going to kill you. Like to her and her sister. And still, he went to court jail again for violating probation. And then the next month, he was given a year for the subway attack, but not for the threats. Okay. But he was only committed, went to jail for six months. But even from jail, he was making collect calls to Ryan from prison and got his like inmates to call her and just harassed and harassed and harassed. And so her parents were still like, no, we're not going to change the number. And even though they kept records of all the calls, you know, and the district attorney's office like told her to keep a record and she had a record of all these calls despite all of that. On November 5th, 1991, was released and because they said that he's been a very good prisoner and we're overcrowded. Yeah. So she had already been taking precautions. She was scared of him. She carried mace in her pocketbook. She had a baseball bat in her car. Um, she slept with knives next to her bed. Like, she just knew he was coming back yeah. for her. So she ended up moving to Salem um, to work with her sister at a family-run business. And But she still was terrified, you know, and she couldn't sleep at night. Eventually, she started dating again, and she dated a guy named Sh- um, Sean Casey, who was 23. And he was a big guy, tattoos bigger than Mike, more tattoos than Mike. And Mike finally started to leave her alone. They knew each other. Mike knew who Sean was from the hardcore scene. Okay. So he like kind of left her alone more. But to be sure of it, Sean went on March 1st to Boston to tell Mike to leave Rose alone. And Mike was like, I don't need Rose anymore. I have my own girlfriend. So Mike had gotten himself a new girlfriend. And his new girlfriend was 21-year-old Kristen Larner. Kristen met Mike on January 30th in 1992 at a Boston nightclub called Axis. She was there with her friends and she instantly recognized him because he was so well known in the hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. Kristen was a well-educated aspiring artist. She was compassionate. She was also very strong-minded. Like she didn't take shit from anybody. She yeah. was a strong girl. And like there's a story where when a boy in high school dropped his pants in front of her, she knocked out his two front teeth. Nice. But why would someone like her, this like strong intelligent person, still continue to 
talk to him knowing his reputation. Octavia Osola, who's the director of the child care center of the home where Mike grew up, said, well, people always felt a great deal of empathy for him. Yeah. Uh, because it was easy, it was reasonably easy to want things to be better for him. Apparently, he was quite endearing. Yeah. Like, big blue eyes, you know, remorseful. And, like, even the staff at the Harbor School, they all felt really warmly about Michael. And she was excited to be dating him. Her family wasn't too crazy about it but he knew how to be good when he needed to like how to say the right things in front of parents and all that stuff and they dated for about two and a half months and then she started to see some patterns like he started to isolate her Mm -hmm. um he would tell her things like i don't like to hang out with your friends because i'm intimidated by how smart they are Mm -hmm. like you know what i mean like feel sorry for me don't but don't hang out with your friends yeah and as the weeks wore on they started to argue and then in early march mike hit Kristen for the first time and Kristen told her friends about it, but she didn't want to tell her family because she was too embarrassed because right. she had always been so outspoken about how much she would never put up with that shit, you know? Yeah. She so was she, probably like, how can this be happening to me? Yeah. Like this. I mean, I think that that is the case with so many women. Yeah. Especially women who are like, I'm a strong person. <laughs> yeah. And then they get into these relationships. We can happen to anyone. It is nobody is immune from it. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. And then it is not only the fact that you're facing abuse, it's that you're embarrassed because you feel like you're allowing it to happen. Yeah. And so then you can't tell anybody because you're like, well, I don't want anybody to think I'm the kind of person this happens to. And it's then it's just this secret that like festers and and, and yeah, and you feel the shame as well as the fear. And I mean, it's just such a fucked up combination seriously so of course she said that she wanted him to get counseling he told her he was sorry and that and she like wanted to believe him and then she went home to washington where she's from and acted like everything was fine she didn't mention anything about her new boyfriend to her family and when she got back to boston mike tried to make up with her and he gave her a kitten Oh, another kitten. I know. The relationship didn't last long. And um, when they got into a fight, earmuffs. Earmuffs. Mike Cartier put the kitten on top of a door jam. <gasps> and it fell off. And it landed on its head. And then she had to take it to the vet to be put down. Oh. Um, so she was absolutely devastated. And then that was the final straw for her. And she called home in tears. And she told her parents about this guy. She broke up with him on the early morning of April 16th. And on that night, a few blocks from her apartment he beat her up they became in an uh, involved in an argument and he knocked her to the ground and started kicking her over and over this is according to the brookline police report and she remembers him saying get up or i'll kill you and when she staggered to her feet luckily this time a car stopped and yeah. two men assisted her home and so since that night, she refused to see him. He called her like a million times a day. And he even told her that if she reports him to the police that he might have to do six months in jail. But when he gets out, that he's like coming for her or whatever. So he was threatening her then yeah. as well. So Kristen took him to court. Mm-hmm. He went to the courthouse with her two friends, Lauren Mace and Amber Lynch. And when they got there, he was out in front of the courthouse And he just was like staring her down. Nobody did anything to help her. Like nobody tried to advise her. Nobody tried to get her away from him. Like she just felt like she was just alone. Yeah. And they also, the courts apparently had no idea that uh, that Mike Cartier was already on probation for beating up another woman. They didn't, how did they not know that? And so the hearing only lasted. Pre-internet? I guess, yeah. So the hearing only lasted five minutes. And this is now his 
third restraining order in 18 months. Mm -hmm. And all he had to do was he just agreed that, all right, you can't contact Kristen for a year and you have to stay away from her apartment and school. And they told him like, stay 200 feet away from her. And just like that, they let him out. Yeah. Just like, yeah, just promise you won't go near her. Here she is. She 100% thought he was going to be arrested. What he did was a crime. Like he beat the shit out of her and people saw it and he's on probation. Like it just blew her mind that she was like, wait, no, 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 you're supposed to take him off in handcuffs and now he's just out here he's threatened me and said he's gonna come get me even if he wasn't yeah and so at 7 30 p.m on saturday may 30th 1992 when kristen larner was walking down the street from her job to a friend's house in plain sight in front of everyone michael cartier shot her twice in the head killing her And then Michael went back to his home and then committed suicide. A lot of this information came from um, a show on ID called Obsession Dork Desires, where they covered Rose Ryan's story. But all of the information regarding um, Kristen Larner's was written, a Washington Post article, by her father, George Larner. Um, So he is the one that wrote this article. He actually wrote a book as well called Stalking Kristen. Mm-hmm. And the reason that he wrote the article and the book and why it's so important was that he wanted to share her story to show how the system failed her yeah. and ultimately to warn other women about abuse and domestic violence. In fact, like on the on the jacket of the book, Gloria Steinem even has a quote in there. And I... Right right when Sally got here today, I'm like, oh, I lost that quote. And I can't (laughs) find it. But the quote basically said something to the fact of she was like, this is such an important book because as someone that speaks at colleges regularly, I have yet to be at a college where there isn't a story about someone from that college who was murdered by a boyfriend or uh, or a husband. And so another reason that I really wanted to tell this story uh, is because I want women to hear the story, you know, as soon as you see the red flags, get out. A friend of mine, her name's Naomi, and she listens to this podcast. Hello, Naomi. Hello, Naomi. And I told her that I was doing this story and I asked her if she minded if I shared her experience. And she said, uh, yes, please do, because she wished that she would have spoken up sooner. Mm-hmm. So about nine years ago, I had just had my son. Naomi found herself in a very bad situation with a live-in boyfriend named Jerry Law. In front of everyone, he seemed like so nice and fun and sweet. It just like sweet, sweet guy hangs out of the bar. Just yeah. happy Jerry. But behind closed doors, he was extremely violent and abusive. And when we all found out what was going on, I kind of took a tough love approach with her because yeah. I had already been through all of this. Like she would leave him, take him back, leave him. To, and right. I had already been through situations like this with friends in the past where I found myself in dangerous situations. Like I've been a car in a car that we were run off the highway. Oh and God. I've been in a car where this guy punched in the windows <gasps> with us in the car. And while I'm sitting there with the police, like talking, Talking to them yeah she was literally down the street on the phone with him uh, saying like i'm so sorry but you're about to you know what i mean like right, right, right. like i'm so sorry this is happening like she I'm was apologizing to him to yeah yeah so as a new mom i was a brand new mom and i was like naomi i love you but i can't put myself in the situation right i don't want to be around him i can't be i it's just like i have to be protect myself and my child right and i if i can't make you leave him i I have to just distance myself from you i took a tough love approach maybe it wasn't the right thing to do she tells me now that she's glad that we did because it wasn't just me it was a few other friends took that approach but she eventually left him um thank god 
But on January 2nd of this year, at the Courtyard Marriott in downtown Decatur, right over here, Mm -hmm. Jerry Locke shot and killed his girlfriend, 42-year-old Rainey Overman, (gasps) before turning the gun over to himself and shooting himself in the head. Oh, my God. And so in between Rainey and Naomi, Jerry had actually married another woman who he was abusive to, Mm -hmm. but luckily she was able to leave him. I say all of this because these stories are important. It's really scary. It's like you always think that it's scary how many times these things turn lethal when you think that. You know, there's just a guy at the bar. Everybody loves Jerry at the bar. Hangs out all the time. It's fun. Fun guy. guy. Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. Like, so this happened January 2nd of last year. Coincidentally, Naomi didn't send me this story until about a week ago before I started researching this story. Yeah. Did you not know? No, I didn't know. I never heard it in the news, but she was just kind of like, she reached out to me and was like, hey, I just want you to know that this happened. I, I never told you, but. Um, I just wanted to make you aware of it. And again, like basically thanks for tough loving me or whatever. So, but yeah, it's very scary stuff. Well, thank you, Naomi, for letting us share that. And I'm so glad that you are safe and got out. Me too. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. Me too. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a love story? Yes. Oh my God. That we was need a palate cleanser. That was intense. Oh, it was intense. I'm sorry. No, it yeah. was really good and it was very important. And I think it is going to be relatable to a lot of people listening. Yeah. We do need a palate cleanser. Okay. And I just want to say that this isn't a lighthearted story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think it will take us to Happy Town in the end. Okay. I hope it takes us to Happy Town or it wouldn't be a love story. It is a love story. But I'm, I'm excited about this story because it's a love story. But it's not a story about long-lasting love. Okay. And which I think most love stories aren't. Like most people don't stay together forever. Right. And I like the idea of celebrating like those relationships that weren't meant to last, but that they were still important in shaping, you know, our lives. And like, so my story today is about a love that only lasted for a brief moment in time, but that time together changed the lives of the two people and of future generations. Aww. So my uh, my information today, my story today, comes from an article in the New York Times by Karen Blankfeld, and I highly recommend reading it. It's beautifully written, and then also Daily Mail. So David Wisnia and Helen Spitzer met in 1943 when she he was just 17 and she was 25, and they were both Jewish prisoners in Auschwitz. So is this an article that... I think I saw in one in one of our messages. Did oh, a listener yeah. send this to you? Yes. Okay. So, I did want to say, yeah, shout out to our listener. Um, it's, she's P. Fersh on on uh, on Instagram. And also Ben, my husband, sent it to me. Oh, and cool. So they both sent this article, and I I loved it. It's so well-written. It's so, it's a really beautiful story. So I hope you guys will read the article. So this is about David and Helen. So David was assigned to the corpse unit when he arrived, and his job was to collect the bodies of the prisoners who had flung mm. themselves against the electric fence surrounding the camp. Oh, jeez. Um, and so he would take the bodies back to the barracks, and then they were hauled off by trucks. And after a few months, word got around that David was a gifted opera singer. And because he had this talent, he started singing regularly for the Nazi guards, and he got assigned a better job, an SS building called the Sauna. 
And that was where he disinfected the clothing of new arrivals. So people would get there and they would disinfect their clothing. And so Helen, who was known as Zippy, had been one of the first Jewish women to arrive in Auschwitz in 1942. She had arrived from Slovakia. And before the camps, she had attended technical college. She was the first woman to finish an apprenticeship in graphic design from her school. And when she arrived, she was given a demolition job in Birkenau. And she was malnourished and ill with typhus, malaria, and diarrhea. And she worked there until a chimney collapsed on her and she was injured. But because she was able to speak German and she had these graphic design skills, she then got a job in an office. So at first she mixed the red paint for the line that was drawn on all of the female prisoners' uniforms to denote them as Jewish prisoners. And then she was given a job registering all of the female arrivals in the camp. And then over time, she was given more and more responsibilities. And with the responsibilities came more and more freedom. So one day in 1943, she spotted David in the sauna, um, which was the building where he worked. And she was instantly attracted to him. She loved music. She played a couple instruments. And so she had heard that he was a singer. And so she arranged for the two of them to meet. And just being able to meet him and like have the freedom to like, for a a woman to be outside of the women's barracks and to be allowed to be alone with a a man just shows like how much freedom she had. And David was struck by Zippy. She was clean. Like that was like one of the things he said. He was like, she's always clean. And because of the responsibilities in the camp, she was allowed to shower regularly and do things like communicate with her brother who was still in Slovakia. By the time the two met, She had become responsible for Nazi paperwork, and she made the monthly charts of the camp's labor force. And Zippy actually used her position to help inmates and the allies. She used her design skills to manipulate paperwork and reassign prisoners from different jobs and different barracks, and she had access to official camp reports. And she shared those with various resistance groups. So she was actually working from the inside to help the allies. And because of this, other inmates also wanted to help her. So mm-hmm. um, so she decided, when she decided she wanted to meet and be alone with David, her fellow prisoners helped. So David and Zippy met the first time, and then they planned to meet again a week later in the barracks between the crematories, four and five. And Zippy had arranged this makeshift space on top of all of these piles of prisoners' clothing. And so it was like she's, they were all stacked up and she made this little like ladder that they could walk up and they could be alone above, kind of like above everybody. Um, and it was just a space for them. And they became lovers. And he said, I had no knowledge of what, where, or when. <laughs> and so she taught me everything. And they continued to meet about once a month, and Zippy made David feel special. I mean, she had this high status among prisoners, and he said, she chose me. And they would spend time together in the nook, and they would tell each other about their lives. Zippy taught David a Hungarian song from her family, and he told her about his father who loved opera, who had died with the rest of his family in the Warsaw Ghetto. And fellow prisoners stood guard, and Zippy paid them to stay in guard and food. So for several months, they continued their meetings, but they knew everything was coming to an end because the Nazis were transporting the last of the camp prisoners out on death marches. They were destroying the evidence and demolishing the crematories. And one afternoon in 1944, they were together and they made a plan. They said, we'll meet in Warsaw when the war is over at a community center. Oh, and, wow. And soon after, in ni- December of 1944, David was transported out of Auschwitz to Dachau. And he was soon sent from there on a death march. And during the march, he just happened to come across a little hand shovel. 
And he was like, this is my chance. So he took the shovel and he hit an SS guard over the head and (gasps) made a run for it. Oh my God. And he found a barn to hide in. And the next day he heard what he thought were Soviet troops approaching. And so he went running after them. And it turned out to be Americans from the 101st Airborne. And so he told the troops his story in a mixture of English and German, Yiddish and Polish. And they fed him. They gave him a uniform. Oh and they God. basically like adopted him. And he was this 17-year-old boy. Oh, my God. And so at that minute, he decided, I'm going to become an American. And he joined the American Army as an interpreter and a civilian aide. And for David, once he joined the Americans, he knew that he could no longer go to Warsaw to meet Zippy. So Zippy was actually one of the last to leave Auschwitz alive. She was sent to a woman's camp before it it was too, it also was evacuated in a death mark. And then she and a friend escaped the march by removing the red stripe from their uniforms, which was the stripe that she yeah. had been in charge of painting. And that allowed them to blend in with the local population and get away. And so eventually Zippy made it to the first all Jewish displaced persons camp in the American zone of occupied Germany. So yeah, they were like, there were like 500 refugee camps that were set up kind of as the war was ending for all of these people who had been taken prisoners. Yeah. So she was in this camp, which in the spring of 1945 housed at least 4,000 survivors, and it was called Feldafing. And this was actually the same camp that David would deliver supplies to as part of his jobs for the American army. Wow. But he had no idea that she was there. Oh my God. So they actually both moved forward with their lives. So soon after she arrived in Falfeting in the summer of September, or sorry, in September of 1945, Zippy married Erwin Tischauer, who was the camp's acting police chief and a United Nations security officers. And those were roles that allowed him to work closely with the American military. And so Zippy, you know, she was a talented woman. She was accomplished, and she took a top position at the camp as well. She was in charge of distributing food among all the refugees and accompanying her husband when Eisenhower and General um, George Patton came to tour the camp. And Zippy and her husband became, over the years, they became like devoted humanitarians. They traveled with the UN to Peru, Bolivia, and Indonesia. And her husband, he taught bioengineering at a university in Sydney, and Zippy learned new languages and her passion was helping pregnant women who were in need which was something she saw a lot at the refugee camps that was like where it started so eventually the two moved to america and they settled in new york in 1967 so david continued with the army until the end of the war and he had heard that zippy was alive but by then he was based in france waiting to immigrate to the u.s and moving to the u.s had always been his dream you know when he was 10 years old he had dreamed of singing opera in new york and before the war he had written a letter to president roosevelt requesting a visa so he could come study music in america oh wow and his mother's two sisters had been immigrated to the bronx in the 1930s and he had memorized their address and like that address kind of became like his light post as he was in Auschwitz. I'm going to make it to there. I'm going to make it to the Bronx. This is the address I'm going to. And so in February of 1946, David moved to New York City. Oh, wow. And he got a job selling encyclopedias. And in 1947, he met his future wife, Hope. And they eventually moved to Philadelphia, where he became the vice president of that encyclopedia company. Oh, wow. And then he had a career as a successful cantor, which is a person that leads worship. I think his his big job was to run the music programs in the synagogue. And so because he had this amazing voice, that was kind of the career, his second career. So years later, a friend told, told David that Zippy was in New York City because she and her husband had moved there in 1967. So though they were both married and older, 
David wanted to meet. The friend set it up and David drove up from New Jersey where his family now live um, to Manhattan, but Zippy never showed up. She later told a friend that she was worried that it would upset her husband. And so David understood, and over the years, he kind of kept tabs on her, but they never met again. David and his wife had four kids and six grandchildren. And then in 2015, after the encouragement of his grandkids, David wrote a book about his time in the camps, which was the first that his family, other than his wife, who he had told everything, that was the first his family heard about Zippy. Oh, wow. And they pushed him to get in touch. And his son, who was now a rabbi, initiated the contact. So Zippy finally agreed to the visit. She was now 98 years old. Wow. And David, along with his two grandkids, went to go visit Zippy. So David was nervous. After all, it had been 72 years since he had last seen her, and he had heard that her health was poor. And Zippy was living in the same apartment that she'd shared with her husband, which was an apartment lined with books. Um, But she was now bedbound and had a hard time hearing and seeing. And when they first arrived, she didn't recognize David. But then he leaned in close and her eyes went wide and she started to speak to him. And she told him about her work and her husband. He told her about his family and his time in the army. And she said, she said, David, did you tell your wife what we did? (laughs) David said, Zippy. (laughs) He was like, I was in front of my grandkids. (laughs) Even though his grandkids were like 35. Yeah, yeah. She told him she never thought she'd see him again. She was like, and New York City after all. And then David finally got to ask the question he'd been wanting to ask for 72 years. She said, he asked, did she have something to do with the fact that he'd managed to survive in Auschwitz that whole time? And now I'm just going to read, I want to read the like, ending of this article because it's so beautifully written okay um so he asked the question and she held up her hand to display five fingers her voice was loud her slovakian accent deep i saved you five times from bad shipment she said i knew she would do that said david to his grandkids it was absolutely amazing amazing and there was more i was waiting for you she said David was astounded. After she escaped the death march, she had waited for him in Warsaw. She'd followed the plan, but he had never come. She had loved him, she told him quietly. He had loved her too, he said. They never saw each other again, and she died last year at age 100. On that last afternoon together, before David left her apartment, she asked him to sing to her. He took her hand and sang the Hungarian song she had taught him in Auschwitz. Oh my god! He wanted to show her that he had remembered the words. Oh, I'm gonna cry! Isn't yeah. that great? That's the yes. end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it! I Yay. know. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> okay, should we do something dumb and something we love? Yes. I'll start. Okay. Um, I will start with something dumb. It was yesterday. Yeah, just yesterday. Just yesterday. I was in a a yoga class, Uh hot yoga, and um, we were doing headstands. And I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try it. I mean, you know, you don't know until you try. That's right. And I did it. And I was like... Look at me. I am this yoga goddess. Uh-huh. <laughs> I am so strong and graceful and beautiful. And then all of a sudden, I came down and was like, crack. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> what the fuck? And so I am, I can barely walk. Yeah. I've been trying to like do some yoga stretching too. I mean, who hurts themselves in a yoga class? I me? Mean, people, it happens. Me. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'm too old for this shit. I just I was not ready. I don't know why I thought I could do a headstand. I mean, I did it, but I didn't uh, get out the, of it alive. Was it the, dis, the dismount? That it was the dismount. Yeah, yeah. When I landed, there was like a crunch and a crack and a yowza. <laughs> that is super dumb. I, I can't even. I'm like in my pajamas right. I like this morning when I was texting Sally. It like went progressive. I'm like, hey, I'm just gonna like you know. I don't think I'm gonna even like take a shower and put on makeup. And then later I was like, I don't think I'm even gonna get dressed. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, I never do, so I don't know why, yeah. I don't know why you would feel like you So I'm a mess. So, but but this uh, that's something dumb. This something I love is I actually really have fallen in love with doing hot yoga, I and love I love hot it. yoga. I think it's great, and I'm I'm still gonna keep doing it. I just need to recover from this. Yeah. Back. <laughs> accident <laughs> uh, so that's mine what about you you know well just life is a little dumb right now yes um but i do want to say that i love all of the messages that i've gotten from listeners oh yay just being so wonderful and supportive and also just i have such amazing friends and my friends from New York um, sent me flowers and they're just I just have such thoughtful friends my friend Grace sent me stuff not that people have to send me things but it's just amazing that people who they want to reached out and just want to take care of me and it just feels really I feel really nice and supported oh hey you want to hear I totally forgot this until right now yeah Naomi her mother the Naomi from the story that I was just telling yeah her when we just talked she said that she listened to the podcast and she goes I think my mom knew Sally's mom really she went to the same school that your mom tried to um, save oh she went to Annie yeah Yeah. and she's almost positive that her mom knows your mom isn't that crazy that is crazy small world it is a small world I actually you know we told the story uh, my friend Fernando, his love story. Yeah. And he sent me a message because he knew my mom yeah. really well. And he said that when his mom, I didn't know this, but like when his mom passed away, being years now, but like that he, he said he got a call out of the blue from a number he didn't recognize and it was my mom Aww. calling him just to check in on him and to say like your mom is out there still loving you and he said I just want to tell you the same thing Aww. and I was like Bye, Fernando. <laughs> so anyway Aww. so thank you guys all for just all of your support and it, it just feels I feel like you know I just feel like warm hug <laughs> yay well we love you Sally yeah all right so you guys uh, thank you and you know do all the things it sounds insincere after saying that but follow us and stuff yeah follow us write nice things because I can't nice. take it right now <laughs> we only right. need nice comments please yeah but you guys thank you so much and get out there and do something dumb for love dumb da dum 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 dum